It's probably safe to say that most of you listening right now have not had the opportunity to walk a catwalk in Milan or be on a billboard in Times Square as a model for anything from clothing to accessories, etc., etc. Actually, I can only speak for myself. I have not had the opportunity to walk the catwalks of Milan or be on a billboard in Times Square as a model of some sorts. But neither here nor there, our episode today is a conversation with someone who has had that experience. It was both a positive experience and a negative experience. There's actually a lot to be learned from her experience that applies to all of us common folk who haven't had that experience. The whole modeling fashion world is an intriguing one, as for most of us, it's this far off in the distance world where we can't necessarily relate to, but as you will see, there's actually plenty that we can relate to and apply to our individual lives, even if walking the catwalks is something that is foreign to us. You will meet Elsie Ramsey in just a minute or two, and we will have a conversation, and hopefully it will be something meaningful for you. This is Mental Filter. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Mental Filter, where we have the opportunity to talk to so many different interesting people, interesting topics, all through the lens of mental health. My name is Shmuel Fischler. I am a clinical social worker. I own and direct a specialized private practice just a bit north of Baltimore called CBT Baltimore. And today's topic, as you heard in the introduction, has to do with being in the world of fashion and modeling. And I'm fortunate enough to have a co-host who's very familiar with that topic and has had her own experiences, some positive, some negative, and she was gracious enough to join me to co-host today and talk about this topic, which even if you're not a model or haven't been in that world, I'm sure you're gonna be able to relate to a lot of the things that she has to share. So without further ado, Elsie, please tell everybody who you are. All right. Well, thanks for having me, first of all. I am a mental health advocate. So essentially what I do is I like to have conversations about depression and being someone who lives with it and functions. And I I just would like to see these conversations become normalized in the workplace and with people who are acquaintances and just become part of casual conversations that we have with each other. I think that would make for a lot less sadness in the world. So I have a website called Bigger Than Depression where I share essays and reminiscences about my own experiences. And then I encourage others to write pieces too so that we can feel like a virtual community. And the idea is maybe if you're feeling not so great, that tapping into other people's narratives and and feeling a sense of solidarity is half the battle. feeling better. I do have a background in modeling. I left high school at the age of 17 to pursue it full-time, and I worked as a model full-time until the age of 23. And so it kind of became a longer-term thing than I expected. 
and we can kind of get into how that happens as well. But it's something that people are very, very interested in generally speaking when I, when I tell my life story. So it's not something I've loved kind of revisiting, but I, I see that maybe there's an important role to be played around this too, because it is a business. It's a, it's a mixed bag. I think most people can accept that without any you know, controversy, but let's talk about it. Let's get into it. Yes, let's talk about it. And thank you for sharing that. And, and I appreciate that it can be difficult to uh, get into those experiences and the way that we try to frame these episodes and really part of the mission of the podcast is to perhaps use an experience that somebody has as a opening to talk about maybe more important things. So even though we're using your experience modeling as, you know, the, I, I hate to use the word to, to bait, <laughs> to have people <laughs> come and listen, but I think it's valuable if we use that as the way to start the conversation and use it to broaden it and to talk about things that are more meaningful. And thankfully, more and more we see people who are in public positions and are public figures and are well known are being more open and talking about it. And I couldn't agree more that the more conversations we have, then the less stigma and the more other people will talk about it and hopefully get the help that they need. So uh, thank you for, for what you're doing for people out there. Absolutely. Thank you. So let's start with just some basics for people out there. I mean, I can say for myself that growing up in the home that I grew up, fairly conservative and you know religious home, I would have to say that honestly, something like the fashion world or, or the modeling world was probably outside of my immediate, immediate vicinity, right. uh, at, least, at least as a younger child just not like immediately available or exposed to it. And so it, it might feel like a foreign world to me at that point. So to get to some basics, you know, if someone says someone was in the modeling world, I mean, it could really mean a whole variety of things. It could be someone who's on the prices, right? <laughs> right. right. No, or someone absolutely. who's a hand model or yeah. someone who's a lingerie model or right. someone who's older and is a model for, I don't know, hearing aids. I mean, it could really be anything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, there's a lot of lanes. So when you think of the fashion business and you think of magazines like Elle or Vogue, you're generally looking at women who are very, very young, 16, 17. And that was the case for me. So if you're kind of on that high fashion track or you're, you're aiming for that or that's what the business has in mind for you, they're going to want you to be young. And that's not just because it's the aesthetic. It's because from a very practical business sense, there's more years, earning years ahead of you. So it's, it's just a better investment. So that being the case, and I, I don't see this changing, you have kind of complications baked in because you're working in a professional sense with people who aren't adults yet and in a very adult environment. That's yeah. a really good point. So we'll focus on that slice of modeling and fashion world. And I know you can only really speak to your own experiences, obviously. If we were to get into the mind of a 15-year-old, 16-year-old, 17-year-old, not that I ever really want to get in the mind of an <laughs> adolescent girl, uh, <laughs> but that being said, if we were to, to get into that mindset, and perhaps even the mindset of their parents, what would drive someone to want to get into that? I mean, obviously, there's money and popularity and things like that. What else is there of what might drive someone to be interested in getting into that whole world? 
So I don't know about people nowadays, but I was a child of the 80s. So it was a moment or a decade or a couple decades where supermodels were a part of our, our cultural fabric in America. We had all these household names like Cindy Crawford, I'm trying to, Christy Turlington, Claudia Schiffer, and they were kind of larger than life. And they were in music videos and they were on the covers of magazines. And that was a unique moment because I think that's very much changed now. So, you know, if you're female, these women represent a whole host of kind of desirable things about womanhood. And so you, you're looking at just the way you would do with like a pop star. You're just idealizing something. So I also was a huge George Michael fan. And again, like this, is, I'm dating myself, but I was a huge fan, a super fan, and not so secretly in love with George Michael. And he loved having supermodels in his music videos. So when I look back on it, sometimes I wonder how much of that was like a part of, you know, being 17 and wanting to do this with my life. But so there is this um, illusion that it's a glamorous life. I have to have this conversation again and again. Like the first thing I say to people is that it was not glamorous because these magazines are selling something and they're selling, they're selling an idea of life and glamour is part of that. So like to say that the business isn't glamorous, I think somehow would like implicate the brands. And so it's very important that that fantasy stay intact. So you're 17 and if you're like kind of an unhappy teenager and you're in high school and you're not really too engaged academically for whatever reasons, and I, I was at 17, I was kind of going through a rebellious phase. Having someone say, we'll buy you a plane ticket to Miami, New York or, or Europe, sounds good. It sounds good. And you're kind of groomed to think that there's a potential that you are going to make money and you know, potentially be making six figures as someone who's 17, that sounds, that, that is a lot of money. It doesn't just sound like a lot of money. But they don't tell you, and I'll just maybe start with compensation, is that very, very, very few models actually make that kind of compensation and can therefore just live off their modeling income alone. Right. You made a lot of good points, and I want to just touch on a couple of them, because you said a lot there. Well, first off, when I, when I hear you talking about that, this is a, a very important point that probably most people would, would appreciate is that technically speaking, we're considered adolescents all the way until like 26, neurologically, developmentally. I'm not going to get too sciencey on people here, but what that means technically is that our brains are not fully developed. The last part of our brain to develop is our frontal lobes. And our frontal lobes is where the higher level of thinking and decision-making, being more rational, that's why most parents think that their teenagers are off the wall, um, not human <laughs> at times. And you are off the wall. You are. Like, right. Well, so you have, yeah. you, you have different moods. You have uh, hormones. And also the decision-making part of your brain to stop for a second and, and weigh the cost-benefit of making a decision is not really fully developed yet. For someone who's 15, 16, 17 to be mature and make a certain decision well, is this really worth it? Is this really smart of me to go ahead and do this? It's just not, it's just not a fair expectation. You try to help them, but it's not a fair expectation. So that's one really good point of a lot of the entry point into this world is people who are young and their brains are not fully developed. So they're not necessarily capable of making such an advanced, mature decision. 
You're absolutely right. And that just ties in with the fact that sometimes when I tell some of these stories, people will say, your parents let you do that? And what I always have to, to get out there right off the top is that I don't blame my parents because at 17, I was going to do it no matter what. And even if they expressed um, dissatisfaction because they didn't have to underwrite it or finance it, I could, I could make my own decision because the agency was going to you know, put forward the money. So I really don't blame them for, you know, how much power do you have over your teen, whatever. And I was also lucky because my mom came with me as I traveled as a young woman, which was really, really important. The agencies don't have to get parental permission? You know, I don't know what the law is around these things because you are, you're under 18, but they're not interested in working closely with the parents. Again, like you can guess why, right? So the more buy-in you have from the young woman um, and the more kind of independent she is from the parents who are presumably more responsible and they have developed brains, the more kind of ways in which you'll be able to call the shot. My mom came and that was unusual. We were in Milan at first together. Um, She also came with me to Miami. My sister came for a while too. And that was just kind of like a big eye rolling thing. We'd get to a photo shoot and they'd immediately ask my mom to leave. So it was really discouraged and maybe you need to get a document signed, but the idea is let's cut the parents out as, as quickly as possible. That was, that was my experience. So this is going to sound a little reductionist and, and I, I, I'm only asking it this way to try to pull an answer. I don't mean it in the negative. If someone were to say that they sum up the industry as being shallow and materialistic and only skin deep and fake, what would your response to that be? I mean, I, I don't see how you would argue any other way. And I think there, it's a business that's kind of proud to have those values. I don't think there's any feeling of secrecy around it. It's like beauty for beauty's sake and also beauty for selling clothes. You can try to look at it from an artistic, um, I think fashion is, is obviously an art form. But beauty and female beauty and young female beauty and the appreciation of it is the uniting theme. And, you know, I think a lot about, like, would it have been possible to kind of stay healthier? I had depression anyway, but, like, could a young woman navigate this territory and work in this business and and stay well? I just can't imagine the circumstances in which that would happen, even if you had a lot of mental health support in place. Because the values are just so, so negative. You beat me to it. That was going to be my next question. <laughs> so how does that affect someone who's in the middle of their like most essential development? You're developing from you know, 13 all the way to, let's say, mid-20s is like development. And you're figuring out your identity, and you're figuring out what you value, and you're figuring out your place in this world, and where you fit in, and, and how do you see yourself, and all that stuff. How does being in this world, which most of us would agree has a certain set of values and I guess they're proud of it. I don't know if in their circles, you tell me if in their circles at their parties, they're like, we're shallow and proud of it. If <laughs> or do they pretend to say and spin it in a, in a, you know, a more um, altruistic uh, sense of making it better than it is. That's not even important, but how does it affect the person who's developing when they're surrounded in this world where the values are, beauty for beauty's sake. I think that it's, it's hard no matter what being a woman. And I, I always think like 
man, I grew up in a time where I was still able to be innocent relative to now. So, but society feels a certain way about women and, and places tremendous amounts of value on the way we, we look because we, we live in a patriarchy, but we won't get into that. But it's legitimized um, when you work in your career is your beauty. And there's no pretense of anything else going on, right? You know, when I think of people who are on a typical timeline, you're kind of maybe developing parts of yourself that have to do with your emotional maturity and your intellect. And modeling kind of puts people, or at least it put me, it kind of like hit the pause button on my development in some ways, because you kind of go into a bit of a survival mode where you're not examining things too, too closely because you are, you know, when you're working and when you're going to castings and when you're in the agency, there's just this one piece of you that's being assessed and examined and either praised or criticized. Every time you go into the agency, they were always looking at my weight, my skin. And, and then when you're, you're on set on a shoot, I mean, in other words, no one's ever like, how are you feeling today? And I've worked, now worked in mainstream office culture and in the nonprofits and I've been to college now. And it's not like we, we don't do enough of that anyway. But in this business, there's no, there's no pretense. So it's like, how do you look? And you know what, if you just went through a breakup or whatever, and whatever, you're in, in distress, and that's caused you to lose some weight, great. Just that's great. I even had one booker say to me, I think maybe in New York, like the, the crazier the girl, the better the model. And, you know, subtext is like, maybe, maybe they're just kind of up for more, or more flexible, less, you know, and that that is actually wonderful for the creative process of who's whoever's photographing them. So yeah, there's no interest in being in a kind of good frame of mind. That's not that. And you can be run ragged. You're traveling a lot too. So you can just be exhausted from different time zones. I got into Milan at 17 with my mom and I was so jet lagged and the agency had someone for me to meet like right after my flight landed. And so I was, I was in the apartment and I was like ready to crash and I was like, I really can't do this right now. And, and they were like, well, you, you have to. So they actually sent the photographer over and I kind of went downstairs. I barely remember this. But the feeling is, you know, once you've signed on the dotted line and they've started making the investment, which means buying your plane ticket and so on and so forth, it's like they're calling the shots. Your autonomy is kind of very compromised at that point. Wow. Wow. That's, uh, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but it's still disturbing at the same time. In a way, it it's not about the person. It's not about the person. It's about the bottom line. And the bottom line is the almighty dollar at whatever cost, even if it's creating a negative image for that person. So it's not about the person. And what you said a couple of minutes ago, it seems like there's almost a pause on life on other parts of the person's development while they're still in this world. And it also felt like the person who's in it feels like there's no choice. He said, once you sign on the dotted line, they paid for this, they paid for that, and now you're beholden to that. You don't really have a choice. Did it feel like there was no choice to say no or something that you were uncomfortable with or you just didn't want to do it? You needed a mental health day. You said that you already struggled with depression prior to that. There was no room for that? No. So I very quickly kind of having grown up, I had a a good household and we were not in any like desperate economic circumstances where I needed to be the breadwinner, anything like that. I mean, you see 
there were a fair amount of women from Eastern Europe and they were coming through really harrowing circumstances. So I had, in other words, like I could just go back and go to college. So like very quickly, I was like, this is, this sucks. Like I, I was in Milan in the, in the winter. It was gray every day. We were in a really depressing part of town where the agency owned their apartments. The castings were these huge cattle calls. They didn't speak the light. I just wanted to go home and the agency very straightforwardly said to my mom, you can't go home now because you have not, you haven't broken even. And so, it, yeah, that just essentially means that all the money that's been extended in advance, like your travel costs, and then like the amount of nickel and diming is amazing. Um, every time photographs are being printed out, your composite cards, delivery fees, like courier fees, they're charging us to deliver our portfolios to potential clients. I mean, the, obviously it adds up the rent. So agencies generally own the apartment that the models are staying in. So they're, they're charging you rent um, as well. So you work up quite a bill and I wanted to go home and they, you know, I was like, no, you haven't earned off. We haven't earned back our money. So I guess like in theory, I could have written them a check and gone home. But uh, that's when you're like, oh, wow, this just got really real. Like I'm in this now. And now having said that, I think that there were things I took away from it. And I look back now with the perspective, you know, I just turned 40. In some ways, my development was put on pause. And in other ways, I had to do some very adult things like traveling around the world by myself. My mom didn't keep coming and interacting with adults and being professional. So you, you know, I don't want to make it seem like it was all one thing. Nothing in life is all one thing. You're absolutely restricted in your freedom. Mm -hmm. Just to, to try to make like a parallel for, you know, everyday life for people, because you made a, a, a ton of good observations. People sometimes overlook the impact of their surroundings. So perhaps in, in, in your case and what you're describing to people and what people are hearing, you know, maybe in hindsight, it seems super clear, like, wow, this type of environment is not really conducive to building a really healthy uh, self-image, uh, a body image, developing other parts of themselves. But the same is true for really everybody. We underestimate the value of who we're around. And it sometimes yeah. feels very hard to change that. So that means who our friends are, who we interact with, what type of events we go to, who at work we interact with, what kind of job we have. Do we stay somewhere where it just doesn't feel good and I'm feeling uncomfortable? So the surroundings that we're around, the friends we choose, the places we choose to be around has a major impact. And if we can, sometimes it doesn't either doesn't feel like we can or we actually cannot to change our surroundings or change who we're around can really pay major dividends if it's just not good for our development. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes, at least for me, I'm like my own harshest critic. And when I, when I think of my life, I often feel the most um, frustration or disappointment over situations where I, I had some freedom or autonomy, but my emotional health was kind of compromised. So we all have these things in our past relationships. We should have moved from more quickly or jobs, so on and so forth. But just in thinking about the age thing, 17, 18, whether you're going to college or you're going, if you're me and maybe it sounds like for you even more, um, our parents have kind of controlled our environment to a certain extent. They put limitations on our social life and what we're doing after school. And, and then you're out there and you can do whatever you want, whenever you want it. And I think that's probably difficult and exciting for everyone. I think that 
what you're saying is really perceptive that I didn't realize the extent to which the people I lived with and worked with and the cities I was in was kind of creating a like a toxic backdrop for my development and mental health. And I think maybe that's something we we do as a defense mechanism because it's hard. Sometimes we can't control our environment as much as we'd like. So you don't want to think that you're the victim of of circumstance or, you know, that you've kind of gotten locked into a situation and, and that you're powerless, but like, there's no question about it. So, and year after year, you kind of, it, it just wears you down. So a lot of the models I know are really wonderful, smart people, but I think the longer you stay in the business, the less confidence you have in other parts of, of yourself. So like going back to college is is hard, like it's terrifying because you haven't been using that part of yourself for a long time. Even if you stay engaged intellectually to some degree, I mean, I was always a big reader, but like, so we become these decisions you make at that fragile age of 17 or 18. So speaking to that last point, how do they persist? So whether it's like the really famous ones that people know their names, their household names, or the ones that are just still in the business and still working, how do they survive that grind and i think again this is a point that maybe we can make a parallel to everyday life how do they persist in such an environment where it's so taxing and draining and exhausting and not really so supportive of the person my theory is you shut down parts of your humanity that's what i did maybe for some other people there is there's more positivity and enrichment for me i just shut down parts of my humanity so like very quickly as a young model you get used to people undressing you, for example, right? So like when you're at a, doing a fashion show or a shoot, like as you're changing, maybe you're doing it yourself, but there's probably like a stylist who's putting the clothes on you and taking them off you. And I remember when I was, again, 16, 17, like the first time that happened, I felt very modest. And I always try to differentiate between modesty and shame. I think it's healthy to be modest about our, our bodies and obviously very unhealthy to feel shame or or that your body isn't good enough or whatever but i felt modest right that was healthy after a certain amount of time when you're just being dressed and undressed and kind of people are touching you um your face or your makeup your hair like you just become less and less in your body or that's how i felt i wasn't really identified with my body anymore and so it didn't feel even when i was modeling lingerie it didn't feel very sexual anymore so it's just an odd thing that happens where and I, now you have to kind of, I've regained modesty about my body, but it was gone for a long time. So that's just one example of ways in which you kind of shut down, power down a side of yourself. As I started to become healthier, I remember like there was this one turning point. I was doing a shoot for, I think it was Stuff Magazine or Maxim. I don't even know if these magazines still exist, but, and all of a sudden in the middle of like shooting lingerie, I just, I needed to lie down. I was having an anxiety attack and I felt like I was going to faint. And I had to like stop, you know, the photographer halts the whole thing. And I, I remember lying down on a couch and someone getting me a Coke and like, and I knew like looking back on it, it's like I was coming back into my body. And so I was feeling humiliated or I was feeling conflicted at least. And that was a sign of health. That was kind of a turning point. I was powering back on because that's a normal way to feel. So that's my answer to the question. That's a really articulate way to say that. I really like how you described it. So I don't want to point fingers at anybody, but perhaps in some sense, the ones who persist and make it and are really successful and 
popular, perhaps they've sh shut off part of their humanity? Uh, yeah, I don't know how you do it otherwise. I, I just don't like... In a way, it's like uh, an extreme version of compartmentalization. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But I think to, to an unhealthy point, because, you know, you touched on this. If for however many years that someone's in this industry and there's no room or permission to really feel not in line with the bottom line, and so a person's trying to control, 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 hold it in, hold it in, whether it's feeling anxious, whether it's feeling conflicted, uncomfortable, sad, hurt, rejected, whatever it is, but you got to got to hold it in, you got to hold it in, you got to hold it in. And you're doing that for so long. What does that do to someone when they're just yeah. trying to hold that in for so long? Yeah, you're just kicking the can down the road. I mean, those of us who have had depression or dealt with mental health issues, there's no, there's no escaping them. Like you can't go around, you have to go through and that's how you get healthy. So the longer you can do that, it buys you time, but these things are going to surface at some point. So for me, they it was, I was 25 when I first went into like real adult psychotherapy and people say like you, you kind of collapse when you can. I had been living in New York many years on my own and, and my parents got divorced and my mom moved back to New York, her hometown. And having her there, I think I felt safe enough to say like, I'm really, really depressed and I'd just been running on fumes for so long. So then it was like getting a, a psychiatrist and getting into treatment and uh, going back to school and beginning my adult life, like my non-modeling adult life. and It sounds like a bit of a progression of if someone, if that's their way of surviving, it sounds like a progression. It reminds me of the old metaphor of the frog in a pot of water, where if you boil a pot of water and then you take a frog, I got nothing against frogs. If you take a frog and you drop it into a boiling pot of hot water, it'll immediately jump out. But if you put a frog into a pot of room temperature water, put it on a low flame, slowly raise the temperature, slowly raise the temperature, slowly raise the temperature, it won't jump out until it's too late and you will have, unfortunately, a boiled frog. And so that's what you're describing of initially, I had this really uncomfortable feeling and then slowly but surely that gets taken away, taken away, taken away and shipped away and shipped away until they don't even realize like how far it's gone. That's right. I've never heard that frog analogy. That's a good one. Yeah, exactly. It's slow. It's, it's somewhat subtle, um, but it takes its toll. And, and just coming back to the mental health stuff, it's like anxiety. It's your body finally saying you cannot, you've been pushing this down and you just simply cannot ignore it anymore. It's waiting for you. Like the emotional cost is just waiting for you down the line or it was for me. So then, you know, and it's, Talking about this subject, I love talking about depression and mental health. Talking about modeling is very hard for me. And when I went into psychotherapy at 25, I didn't really talk about it that much. I talked a lot about my childhood, as all of us do, and my insecurities. But I just, I felt a sense of shame about it. Like, it's not legitimate work, or um, it's just unsavory, or whatever. And moving into the, the realm of kind of mainstream careers and working with people who have advanced degrees that it was it was embarrassing somehow. I don't think anyone else felt that way, but I felt that way. I guarantee you that there were tons of others that felt that way. Maybe they didn't say that. Yeah. There are millions and millions of people who walk around struggling with shame. You know, I sometimes 
hopefully I have a good enough relationship with some of my clients. I, I try to use humor all the time and try to laugh. That is so important. I try to, we try to laugh together about things that even though those things are serious, but to really laugh about them. In some ways, I, I can't tell you how many people I've worked with that there's shame about what they're struggling with. I'm struggling with something, but it's not valid that I'm struggling with something. If I'm feeling depressed or I'm feeling anxious, it's almost like the American idol of problems. <laughs> as, if, as if there's a competition to prove that my problems, my struggles are worthy enough to be struggles. And I always, in a kind and gentle way, but firm, you know, challenge that. Let's challenge that. Really? Like, is there, I didn't know there was a rule book. I didn't know there was certain criteria that you need to, you need to check off this, 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 and this, and now it's a valid struggle. Okay, good. You made it. Now you're allowed to struggle with something. There's no rule book on, on what a person struggles with. The bottom line is if I'm struggling, I'm struggling. If I want to make a change, I want to make a change. I want to improve my quality of life. Let me try to improve my quality of life. It's not me comparing my struggles with the next person's struggles. There is always going to be someone else who has a different package of problems, which I can tell myself that, well, that's way worse. They grew up without running water and medicine and ate potatoes for meals seven days of the week. I have a restaurant down the block. I have heat and water and a nice place to live and a bed to sleep in. How could I possibly be struggling with fill in the blank? And it's just an unfortunate trap to fall into of trying to prove to ourselves that our struggles are worth it. It's a double whammy because it not is. only am I struggling with it, now I deny myself the permission to struggle with it. Absolutely. And Brene Brown has done such great work on shame and also how to be with someone who's in a lot of emotional pain. And she talked about how difficult that is because as human beings, we want to comfort others and sitting with someone who's in pain is very hard. So our reaction is to say, well, you know, at least you're not, you know, going through a divorce or you, at least your parents were married when you're growing up, but you had a house or whatever it is. It's actually kind of the worst avenue because it delegitimizes that, you know, the pain or says it's not valid. So, and I've had to do this with people I love and people have done this with me. And it's, in many ways, it's a great honor to be able to, to sit with someone who's in pain because they're letting you into this very private moment and to not tell them to feel better or why to feel better, but sit there in the pain with them. So absolutely, like my depression, I've never lost functionality. So I've, I've never not been able to, you know, complete my classes or be hospitalized. I've never had a long period of time where I didn't get out of bed or does that mean that I haven't been like kind of severely affected and in, in some ways defined by, by depression? Yeah, I mean, it absolutely has just because it didn't completely debilitate me. So however it is that you're feeling, that's fine. So there's a mental health website that is a kind of, I guess, more like what chat rooms used to be, where someone comments on what they're going through and then other users respond. Uh, everyone's anonymous, but someone was talking about how they just started therapy and medication for the first time in life, getting treated. And this person was feeling demoralized on session four or something, because I think everyone feels this way. Maybe when you're first starting, there's no magic bullet and you don't necessarily immediately connect with your doctor. And this person was saying the session seemed really short. You know, it really bothered me the, the stuff that people were saying that chimed in because they were doing exactly what you just mentioned. 
someone said, do you have family support? Cause that really helps. And this person said, well, no, I mean, not really because my mom didn't believe that I was depressed for many years. She'd call me a liar. And so that's a dead relationship, right? So, and then someone would say, well, no, 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 that's your mom. And they, they love you and you should forgive. And I was like, no, you don't have to forgive your mom for that's horrible. And like, yes, you can make that decision to not be in relationship with that person. And then other people would jump in and be like, so that attitude is your problem. Like, you know, that's self-defeating. And presumably these are other people who've struggled with this stuff. And I just was so surprised. It's like, so I wrote something that was like, I understand everything you're feeling like, yes, therapy can be really difficult at first and you can feel like you're spending a fortune and not making any progress. But I said, it does get better. It did for me. And yeah, I, I understand why you need distance from your mom, whatever. It was like four sentences, but it's like, why do people do this? Especially people who struggled with mood disorders themselves. People don't necessarily have the awareness of the impact of what they're saying. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, what, for you, was there a like a straw that broke the camel's back that finally helped you make that final decision? Okay, I'm done. Yeah. So, you know, I wasn't walking away from a lucrative career like some people who are successful. I was scraping by, you know, I'd work maybe once a month. So I'd go to castings, maybe I'd have one shoot a month. So it was very little work for around the salary I had when I first left college. So economically, I was not making, and living in New York City, like it was not going to cut it. So there was no straw that broke the camel's back. It was kind of a gradual fade to black, <laughs> um, <laughs> that rhyme. I was working very little. You can work for a couple of days and make several thousand dollars. Even if I was working just once a month, I, I was still making some money, but it wasn't enough to live in New York. And it was this really bad situation because I was taken out of what New York considers poverty level wages. So I wasn't able to get health insurance and things like that, even though, you know, the agency doesn't offer you that. You're self-employed, but obviously not enough to kind of be independent. So it wasn't working economically, emotionally. You know, I was getting older. So, so it was like a fade out. And I didn't have any, like, there was no resistance to me walking away at that point. Do you miss anything? I'm glad you said that because I've actually started doing um, some photo shoots recently and enjoying them because for the website and for various things I write and social media, I've been creating images that I get to be part of the creative process in conceptualizing. And it's really, really fun. And I work with like makeup artists I like and photographers I like, and I, I'm kind of remembering that it's kind of fun to be in front of the camera and it's really neat to see the finished product. When you're a model, at least for me, you don't have that same satisfaction at the finished product because it, it doesn't feel like something you helped create. It's a picture of you, but you didn't play any sort of central role. It's an odd thing. I remember looking at everyone else around a set, even the people who were just probably like young art school students who would hold the things to light your face. And I think they're engaged creatively and no wonder the fact that we're in hour seven or eight like they're still they still have energy they're doing something that's meaningful and i'm sitting here i'm either sitting in the back waiting for lighting or having my hair and makeup done or i'm sitting on the set that's a really good point because what you're basically what you're saying is is that you feel more stimulated when you're part of something that you build as opposed to just being like a cog in the wheel and not participating not building People feel meaning 
when they are building, when they are creating, and at least from your your perspective and your experience, and probably for many others, the models didn't feel like they were part of the creative process. They were like a chess piece that was put into place, but they weren't actively involved in building and creating whatever it is. No, and you're really at the bottom of the food chain. That was a surprise to me. So on sets, like very few people want to talk to the model. Obviously, the client is the person who who's most important, but the makeup artist, the everyone else has seems to be yeah connecting that that sense of human connection and community that we know is so important to our health and there's a creative output so when i started my website and i started writing and talking about mental health it was it was kind of everything that i'd been missing i learned just how important it is and i think anyone who's who struggles with depression and i'm almost at a point now where i'm like who doesn't sometimes i should walk that back clinical depression is really different than than feeling kind of demoralized. But no matter what, writing or taking pictures or expressing yourself creatively is just one of these tremendous tools. And so, yeah, as a model, you're kind of, you're like, well, how many outfits do I have to do? I'd always want to know, like, is it seven? Is it eight? Is it 10? And then I can count down. And everyone else is talking about how it's going to be styled with your hair, your makeup. Again, you're just like, you're a, a prop and you'll see a finished picture i've heard other models say this too and they'll say i just that doesn't look like me like that that doesn't not just that it's retouched but it just speaks to the way in which your your appearance is kind of manipulated by the by the client i have to jump in here because that yeah. speaks to that's expanded to the whole world now society yep. is is that what we're exposed to what we see online how much of it is real whether it's real information or whether the portrayal of, of an image or a story is actually genuine, authentic, is that really the person's life? So this is a microcosm in this industry where maybe it's more prominent, but now it's, it's really, I think for everybody of what's portrayed is their authenticity. How much authenticity is there? And it's certainly not something that they put into the contract in big bold letters when they got you to sign on the dotted line. This is relatable to every single person listening of what we see. And even though we know it's not real, we're still affected by what we're exposed to and what we see, which portrays a certain image. Yeah, I was just talking about with one of my therapists how performative social media is the other day. Um, because I'm in grad school now, I'm having to do more social media stuff and I'm learning theory and I'm spending more time on it. And I'm, so I'm unhappier. <laughs> and I was thinking like everyone's a model on Instagram, as you were just saying that, right? Like everyone now has professional pictures for their birthdays. Like how many birthday shoots do we see on Instagram? People are controlling their image. I mean, it's, it's self the manipulation comes from you, but it's still that same process. Now it's very different when you're doing it than when someone else is doing it. You know, it's kind of like modeling, you kind of start going down this slippery slope where maybe you're, you're more and more, you're becoming more and more performative online. And that's what Bigger Than Depression is about. It's like, what is the counter narrative to all this bragging? Like face it, it's a lot of bragging. Can you talk about or post a picture of like a bad day or talk about that you're not feeling well? And I noticed that on Instagram, like a lot of wonderful mental health advocates, they'll post like really long captions about some a very painful topic like sexual assault or something, but it'll be with an image that's kind of 
them in Spain on a beach or something. Like it's it's an artful photo, but it's still like a beautiful. Elsie, it's so I'm so glad you brought that up because it's such an interesting observation. I'm not going to be like on the record of this, but anecdotally, it's interesting you brought that up because it could go both ways. Even sharing something that's painful and difficult, because uh, you've probably heard of the term of humble bragging. Yes. You know, yeah. right? So you talk about bragging and it's sort of like I post something. Oh, I happen to post that, you know, I did this charity event and I helped this and this and this and this person and organization. And that is great. It's beautiful. But in a way, I'm like throwing in there and how good I am that I did this. And unfortunately, so many things can be twisted. So there's the more obvious bragging of, oh, look what I did. Look how I look. Oh, I'm on vacation. Oh, I bought this house, whatever, whatever. And then unfortunately, I see that sometimes sharing something that was negative and painful is sometimes twisted into like a bragging of sense. Oh, look at me. Look how authentic I am. I am trying to be so real and really share with the world this painful experience. And almost like it loses some of the the value in sharing if it's presented in a way that takes something painful and meaningful and then twists it into like, I want a pat on the back for sharing this painful thing. So it's like a dance. It's like a hard balance to share and create meaning for people without twisting it into some form of a bragging, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it's a really vicious like feedback loop. And I don't know who coined the term humble bragging, but I just love that person because it's so on point and it doesn't, you know, like no one's fooled. Okay. So I don't know much about celebrities and I don't follow them, but I saw the other day, I think John Legend and his wife just had a child didn't make it. And um, I don't know if she posted it. He put it on his Twitter, but I think it was her Instagram post. And she was in the hospital, sitting up in her hospital bed with her, you know, gown on and, and she was crying. And she wrote this post about the unthinkable pain they're feeling. And I thought, I just think how strange it is that we share these super, super personal moments now. You know, I'm all for it. I'm all for sharing things that are, are difficult. But then again, what is like, what's the payoff there if it's not just to kind of potentially comfort someone else. I saw that picture and I, I, I don't know them. I can't judge them. I don't know what's going through their mind. But what popped into my head when I saw that is like in such a moment, you have to have a certain perception, a certain mindset to think, hey, let's stop and take a picture of this. Seriously. Of, no, seriously. Such, of such a moment. I, I can't accuse them of like it being posed. I can't do that. I can't do that. But that's what popped into my head. I'll, I'll share a personal story, actually. At the birth of one of our children, baby was delivered. And my wife and I are sitting there with the baby and just smiling, observing. And, and it was a couple minutes passed by and the doctor was still there. And he came over to us and he said, you know what, I just want to tell you how appreciative I am that the second your baby was born, you didn't take a picture right away. You didn't get on the phone right away to tell this person, that person, the second your baby was born and you took in the moment that your child was born and you just appreciated that. I thought it was wow. very nice that the doctor wow. like, picked up on that and said something like felt nice that, that he realized that, but that's just, just an example of that. So that, again, it's this like push and pull of sharing for the sake of creating meaning versus sharing in a way that comes across as inauthentic and loses all the meaning and value that you could do with that. I, I want to go back just a couple of minutes into something you said about, well, being on set, models weren't necessarily talked to a whole bunch. Can you talk a little bit about the relationships between models? Because mm -hmm. 
And, yeah. and this is something, again, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to because to some degree, we're all in some sort of competition with each other. Or it seems that. So if we're in the same office, we're in the same industry, we're in the same, I don't know, the same gym. It doesn't really make a difference. What is the relationship like between our contemporaries? And then I imagine it, it also plays out in the modeling world where you know, you're at a casting call, all of you want it. What are the relationships like between models? So in a big picture sense, and then I'll get more specific, I think that for me, I sometimes feel really sad about those years when people are in college that produces these really intimate lifelong friendships because in modeling, it's really hard to get close and stay close to people because you're always being shipped to different markets and, and different you know cities. And so you're there's a lot of, you're, it's a nomadic lifestyle and there's a lot of upheaval. So, you know, there were a couple of times where I felt like I was living with someone in a model's apartment who was kind of someone I really liked and was connecting with, but then you, you're displaced. And like, even if you stay in touch for a while, it kind of doesn't take because you're not having the same experiences anymore. But in a day-to-day -day sense, you know, it is hard. If these apartments are packed. They'll put six or seven models in them. And if you're not getting any work and you're going casting day after day and someone books like, remember like back in my era, it was like Abercrombie and Fitch. I remember like I was in Miami and someone booked an Abercrombie and Fitch campaign. And I was just like, I remember just feeling kind of devastated. I think if everyone's working a fair amount, I think you kind of cling to each other. You're all dealing with the same stuff from the agency. It's kind of like everyone's on the same team. But yeah, it can be hard when someone kind of vaults to the next level and you do feel like when you're first starting out and you go to a casting where like everyone's beautiful and anyone could do this job like and there's a lot of other people who have the same coloring as you and the same type you again it further kind of diminishes this, this feeling of like being a unique human being but yeah just like overall I think friendships are difficult to to maintain that that makes life a bit harder too and in your description it also touches on the fact that in this business and in many businesses that I can think of where it's, I hate to use this terminology, but you eat what you kill and that each job is its own job. It's not like there's an annual salary and you know, this is your responsibilities and you do that. You get this gig, you get this shoot, you get this campaign. Okay. You get paid. Great. Yeah. But yeah. Then you start right. again. Now you need another one and now you need another yep. one. Now you need another one. So you're walking yep. around constantly having to hope and work and I don't know, beg and plead for yeah. the next job, which I imagine that could have a toll on someone. Sometimes it does feel like a zero sum game because once you kind of catch on, so say you get hired by someone or you're in like Italian Vogue and then, then kind of everyone wants to use you, it can kind of change very quickly and you start building momentum because like, I think you still see this. It's how people become so familiar to us other designers fall in line so like one designer likes your look and then everyone else kind of follows suit so and the money like yeah when you do catch on you it's it's a lot of money but there is like for the vast majority of us who don't get to that point it is constant economic uncertainty but this money is like kind of just closed dangled right in front of like you can book a ten thousand dollar job in two days so that's another reason you kind of stay on the treadmill because there's always that possibility that right around the corner there's going to be like a lucrative contract or something Spirit on the stick is always there. Yep. So to wrap it up for now, I guess, may sound like a bit of a cliche question, but if someone were to come to you, and maybe they have already, who's younger, who was considering getting into the industry, or maybe perhaps you have a child of yours that at a certain age wants to get into the industry, what would you say to them? 
No. <laughs> no. <absolutely. laughs> oh, that was easy. <laughs> uh, no. Well, on the other hand, like I know that if you don't have kind of moral authority over your kids when they're teenagers and you haven't kind of engaged with them and showed up for them in their childhood, like they're not going to, they're going to, who cares like what you think. But yeah, no, I... And I also don't believe in like, you don't want to deny someone something and then they kind of walk through life with regret. So th those are kind of more complicated things. But no, I absolutely try to talk people out of it. Like uh, a part B to that question is, and I know you said this earlier, you're not here mm -hmm. to like throw the industry under the bus per se. It's not the purpose of what we're talking about. We're talking about this to to understand and to be curious and to, and to learn from it. So I guess the part B to that question is, is there a way for someone who is intent on getting into that industry to do it in the way that I think so yeah I think so I think if you stay in school like I think it's actually well I don't know it, you you can't be traveling internationally and be in college oh, I guess you could you could be doing online but like I would just continue engaging and like on a mainstream track with your education and do it as like a part-time thing if, if you really really feel compelled and just set limits for the agency and boundaries and if they're enthusiastic enough about you they'll do it that's really different than kind of putting yourself in their hands entirely and giving yourself over it to it as like a full-time thing. Like I'd even model, be a very different kind of modeling uh, now, but like it wouldn't be, well, I'm older, but it wouldn't be damaging in the same way. You know, I'm in graduate school, I do my work, like then I could do a photo shoot. Even then though, I'd say be really, really mindful and careful because these experiences stay with you and they, they shape the person you become. So like, I was looking at representation in New York. I was dealing with one agency and they liked my, my images and they liked my Polaroids. And like, they were like, so we need um, a video of you in a, in a bikini talking for a couple minutes about yourself. And I was just like, oh, you know, a bikini? Like, why? I'm not doing that anymore. This is, I'm in a different life phase and I don't, you know, so just set boundaries, set limits and maybe it could work out. I mean, it's a great income stream if it works out. Right. I like, I like what you said and I like the, the boundaries and the limits. And one of my takeaways from hearing you sharing and talking is something that so many of us could benefit from is to trust yourself. Yeah. Trust your gut. If something doesn't feel right, if something, whether it doesn't fit with your values, your morals, your background, you know, we didn't even touch on the more heavy, serious parts of this, of serious body image issues, abuse and inappropriate behavior. We can have a whole nother episode on that, but we're not doing that now. Like this dark content for these days. We'll keep <laughs> it, we'll stay on the surface. <laughs> but even before that, even before that, it's a really important message to internalize that people should trust themselves. Trust yes. your gut. If it doesn't yes. feel right, speak up for yourself advocate for yourself, remove yourself, and set those boundaries, set those limits. And this speaks back to full circle here is that when you when you're talking about depression, some of those deeply held beliefs, those core beliefs that we tend to call them is, am I worth it? Do I deserve that? Am I valuable enough to be able to speak up? And if I don't feel good, then I don't have to do that. That's, that's what feeds that. So that that's the message I got from you. If you're going to be in this industry and not even not in this industry to believe yourself, trust yourself, and then act on that. Yes, you said it very, very well. And you say, say no. And young women have, have been, I think it's hard for us even, you know, no matter where you are, say no and, and know that you have, depression is really about feeling out of control or loss of control, but that's never the case. Like we're never totally helpless. So you have to keep that in mind.
and take back your own the, the power to make decisions about your life i just like one last thing is that i um starting a photo series called i'm not my depression where i wanted to like, kind of have a number of images posed on my body that are qualities that we as human beings roles we occupy so some are depression and anxiety and then others are being a mother a spouse a, a graduate student a, you know whatever all of the things that we are and i was wearing like a, a nude slip and there somewhere i'm kind of just like covering myself on top and it's it's the most skin i've i've shown since my young modeling days and i actually had like some real anxiety leading up to like the morning of the shoot it just came because i think it i, I was just brought back you know all of us have these experiences sometimes you think oh 16 years ago or whatever but then you just have this like really visceral experience of of I don't know, re-experiencing something that was very difficult. So I actually, this anxiety came up. And so I had to not just say it in, to myself, I said it to the photographer and the makeup artist said, you know, now it's so great because I belong to myself. So I make this decision. And that is what makes the difference. And I'm really proud of the pictures. And I think they're, they're wonderful. And I was comfortable. And I did it with people I've known for 20 years. But that's really the core of it. Wow, that's, I love that. Thank you for sharing that because that's like a complete reframe or a, a 180 of earlier experiences versus recent experiences of now you're in charge, you have the autonomy, you're the boss, and you can still have an uncomfortable experience, but because you feel in control of yourself, it changes everything. So that's a, it's a really neat story. I mean, I'm sorry that you experienced it, but it's, a, I think it's a really powerful uh, way to express that. So before we sign off, I'm just going to remind everybody that in order for us to continue doing this podcast, again, we have no sponsors. Elsie is very kind of volunteering her time as well as I am. So if you can support just by either subscribing, rating, reviewing, sharing, all that good stuff, that would just be supportive for us. I thank you, Elsie. Can you please remind everybody where they can find you if they want yes. to look at some of these wonderful projects that you talked about? Yeah, so I just encourage people to go to biggerthandepression.com where you can read about stuff I've experienced. And then if you feel moved to write something, I'd love to see it. And I always tell people they can remain anonymous if they want, but it's a wonderful thing. Until you've done it, you don't know just how good it feels to, to open up and share. So I'd love to, to hear from people. And um, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was really my pleasure.